But there is something of concern, and it's emerging now, and perhaps you heard it in the news. And it comes down to a brand new variant of the COVID-19 Omicron. It is the Kraken. And how bad is it? Well, we're still trying to get a hold of just uh, what sort of uh, implications this has. But in terms of infections, we're hearing up to 40% of new cases in the United States are Kraken. And uh, it is spreading very quickly across parts of Asia. So that brings us to what we're doing about it now, right now, in our province. Richard Zussman, Global BC reporter based at the legislature, joins us now. Happy New Year, Richard. Happy New Year, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Uh, You know, is this as serious as uh, we think it might be? I see that uh, we've already got uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry out talking about it. Yeah, I don't know how serious you think it is, Bruce, but based on what Dr. Henry said, this is not something that British Columbians need to be fearful of. It is not going to change the province's approach to the pandemic, that the layers of protection that are currently in place will continue to allow the province uh, to uh, operate largely in a regular manner. But there is an importance here to continue to watch what this subvariant can do. So uh, we saw last year around this time Omicron exploded. It had a massive impact on the province and the way in which we manage the virus. Uh, Dr. Henry said this is not that, that uh, they're watching it. We've had some cases of this subvariant, and yes, the snazzy name is Kraken, but there's also a more scientific name to it that they're using in a bunch of uh, other areas, the XBB 1.5. So you'll also hear it described as that way as well. Uh, so all of that is an important factor when sort of looking at what we're going to do. It, it, it's not in many places leading to a huge surge in hospitalizations, although the state of New York has seen a, a slight increase in hospitalization. Yes, it's leading to a surge in cases, but it could overall have a lower level of severity than what we saw with even Omicron, which we knew know was a lower severity than Delta. So that could, in essence, be good news around this subvariant. Yeah, Richard, I think you raise a good point uh, when it comes to how you measure the seriousness. Uh, what, uh, what sort of metric do you use? And the one that... Uh, you know, people often jump to is the number of cases because that's spread, right? One case is it has spread one case. But uh, in terms of seriousness, and I think you mentioned this, uh, we're not seeing anything that indicates it's any more serious than what we've already seen, right? Yeah, and the other thing we really need to understand is how well do our current vaccines work against it? And the, so far, the BC or the CDC globally, uh, as well as health officials all over the world, are trying to understand that. And the recommendation continues to be to ensure that you get your bivalent vaccine and you get the vaccine that has been adjusted to help protect against Omicron. Those are all things that we know uh, can help at least reduce the severity. You know, how effective is, you know, is it the same efficacy as what we've seen with other subvariants? We just don't know yet. So all of those are important measuring sticks. And yes, Bruce, we need to largely get out of our head this idea that we measure severity through case numbers. It's just not the case anymore, that it is really based on 
serious infections and death connected to the virus because we're not doing a lot of testing and we know that there's a lot of things spreading around and if we've been vaccinated if we follow other you know things here other precautions we know that largely we'll be able to protect our healthcare system and keep people you know healthy maybe after a short infectious period Richard, it's so difficult when we come to this whole concept of messaging. And I know we've talked about this a great deal and you continue to follow the message. And it's really, you know, something that uh, comes under such scrutiny. Um, but I don't know what the solution is. All that said, uh, getting to this point, uh, when it comes to what is the use of this making headlines now, this new variant, um, I guess it also gives us a reason, a, uh, a reason to go out and get a vaccination, which really has been a problem and a challenge because we still don't have people uh, renewing or getting up to the level of vaccination that they qualify for, right? Yeah, so we've seen a huge drop off from second vaccine to third vaccine to fourth vaccine. And now we're starting to see some people even qualify for their fifth dose. Uh, you know, part of this is just the sense of normalcy. There will be people that will not, you know, in any circumstance get vaccinated. There are a number of people who find it inconvenient, will not get vaccinated. The higher rate of vaccination, we know we will see a lower rate of severe illness. Uh, We've seen that all over the globe. BC is fortunate to continue to have one of the higher rates of immunization. It doesn't mean that we're going to see you know, no cases. We we have no real other COVID-19 measures in place other than vaccination and then the individual decision someone makes around wearing a mask or staying at home when they're sick. There's no longer requirements for those things. It's just about practice. So, you know, we're just, it's it's sort of part of creating part of our routine around, you know, ensuring that you're up to date on your vaccination and you are doing the things to best protect yourselves, especially if you fall under that extremely vulnerable uh, category or, or, you know, closely contact with someone who is. And I think that is also one of the key things. Uh, it's great to say that most people uh, don't ha- ever have to worry about this now. Vaccinations really have helped. But there are people in our society that are vulnerable. I'm thinking of those who are elderly, like uh, my own mother uh, in a care home, and those people who have compromised immune systems for any one of a number of reasons. Is Bonnie Henry still uh, looking at this, following this, uh, caring about this? Yes, and, and this is, you know, still among all of her responsibilities as BC's provincial health officer, this is still number one. And, you know, she was happy to do an interview today. You'll see that on the news hour. She communicates around the data. She is in tune with the work that's being done. Like this is still, we are still in that global pandemic here. And we are largely fortunate due to vaccination that we can live our lives in, in, in close proximity to normalcy a normalcy that we remember from 2020. Um, You know, she still still attends all of these meetings. There are still high-level conversations, and she is still very much in tune to what's happening globally around the spread of this virus and the work that's being done in prevention. Another interesting thing we spoke about is the measures that were put in place around travelers coming from China. Right. And I I think she, she was quick to say that they know that this is not going to prevent spread. 
But the message it sends is a message to China that they must be transparent on a global level with this virus, that the lack of transparency that China is showing in the global community has repercussions, and the repercussion is a requirement around uh, testing to travel. And that is the message that the Canadian government and other governments around the world is attempting to send to China here. Well, it still is a country that has, uh, and this is only by account because we don't know, as you say, it's not transparent, but a million new cases per day. So that is something to uh, definitely watch. And uh, I imagine that's uh, part of why she has to address uh, this part of it. Richard, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. My pleasure as always. The new regulations and types of work that are not suitable for younger workers, while they took effect yesterday, the start of 2023, and following public and stakeholder consultations and some rethink of injury data, a number of jobs within industries were identified as being far too dangerous for younger workers. Those jobs in construction, forestry, food processing, the oil and gas sector, And the power generation sector, as well as asbestos removal, all a good idea and all following too many stories we've heard about young people being injured quite often in their first jobs in the sector. Uh, To talk a little bit more about this is BC's Minister of Labour, Harry Baines, who joins us now. Happy New Year, Harry. Bruce, Happy New Year to you and all to your listeners. This is something that has been long coming and demanded for years. Why has it taken so long to get some of the uh, rules for people that are like 18 years old in place? Well, you know, Bruce, you're correct. I think uh, early 2000, I think the past decade, uh, BC government of the day was cited by International Labour Organization, which is a wing of the United Nations citing us that we're not uh, complying with the minimum standards of, uh, of young workers uh, in British Columbia. And uh, we formed government 2017. We started to do the work. We passed uh, the uh, legislation uh, um, changing the, uh, the act and the, uh, the workers in the uh, employment standards. And now we are bringing resolutions to implement those. And as you mentioned, um, the hazardous work for 16 to 18 year old become uh, effective January 1st. Um, I think you mentioned a number of those. Uh, uh, we, you know, look at the data from the WCB. $26 million have been paid to young workers between 2012 and 2021. And some of them life altering injuries. And uh, I think the reasons behind that, as we know, uh, is that um, these workers don't have the experience uh, or the uh, mental or physical uh, maturity to say no to adults uh, when it comes to dangerous work as compared to the, uh, the older and experienced workers. And uh, I think then there's a huge power imbalance, as you know, between uh, you know, young workers and adults. And um, uh, you know, the younger workers may not have the knowledge or the confidence to to refuse unsafe work as uh, compared to the uh, the uh, experienced and, and older workers. So I think considering all of that, uh, we passed the uh, the act last year. Now we are bringing through, uh, through regulations, through consultation, and defining those jobs that are suitable for 16-year-old and those that are uh, suitable for 18-year-olds. 
You know, there is nothing sadder than hearing somebody at the very start of their career being maimed or worse and uh, not being able to carry out the life that they would hope for. But I also understand some of the challenges when you talk about uh, jobs in B.C., especially in, and they still do exist, in resource-based towns uh, where you have a forestry sector working on a green chain or maybe even on in a fishing uh, community where you have people working on fish boats. Uh, the money can be great, uh, much better than working in retail. So how is it that you can shift the mindset of some of these younger workers to understanding there is a time and place? Bruce, you're bang on. I think, you know, the work experience, especially for the younger workers, uh, can be a rewarding and exciting opportunity. Uh, you know, the first paycheck, the first job, we all remember. And uh, But I've also seen during my lifetime, uh, first as a union organizer and uh, official, and now as a politician, I have uh, heard stories, um, you know, when within weeks or within days of starting a job, someone is injured seriously or, or killed. And I think, you know, those uh, type of stories touch your heart and you want to redouble your efforts to make sure that the workers who go to work uh, come home safe and sound at the end of their shift. And the only way to do that is make sure that there is a preventative uh, uh, measures in, in, in place uh, supported by strong enforcement and, and through training and, um, and uh, uh, education. And, but still, they do get injured. And I think uh, when you look at the age uh, factor of uh, younger workers, like I said before, they may not have the maturity to say no to adults uh, when, even if they know that there's a dangerous work. And they may not have the knowledge that they can say no. So I think uh, it, these, uh, that's why it becomes so much important for us to define what jobs they can be placed on at what age. So I think uh, when we define these uh, uh, you know, jobs that are suited for a 16-year-old, then there's no confusion uh, that the employer has what job they can be employed on, what they cannot. Same thing with the 18-year-old. And I can tell you, uh, we were, BC was the only jurisdiction in the previous 20 years that allowed um, workers as young as 12 to do any work. And I think that is not in, in complying with the international standards or what we as a society uh, you know, have our obligations to our young people because they are still maturing, they're still developing. And I think we need to support them as much as we can, especially the health and safety when they go to their first job. Very good move, uh, very quickly. And uh, just a very short answer, uh, do we have uh, the enforcement and checks in place to back this up? Absolutely. I mean, no law is, uh, is good if you don't have enforcement. We have employment standard branch. Uh, their duty will be to, uh, to uh, do the audits and make sure that uh, they follow up the complaints. And uh, proactively, they go and visit uh, certain areas where they may get a hint that there may be a worker who may not be suitable for a job. I mean, they do that job right now anyway. Workers' compensation uh, also uh, have enforcement teams. They go out there, do uh, spot checks, uh, every operation. Uh, and, um, you know, many times, uh, most workers, most employers are good employers. They, they, they do look after their workers' health and safety because they recognize that their biggest asset or the most important asset is their workers. But yes. there are some still out there who may take shortcuts, and that's where the enforcement would be very, very, uh, very, very important. It's the right thing to do. Harry Baines, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
Well, nothing to be proud of here. Our federal party leaders have received a report card of sorts at the end of the year. And the grades, well, here they are, C, D, F, the type you'd like to hide from your mother. To get to the bottom of this, we talk about those issuing the grades, and they're from the Canadians United Against Hate. Fareed Khan joins us. Happy New Year, Fareed. Happy New Year to you, and thanks for having me. Well, uh, you're very welcome. And, you know, when I take a look at C, D, and F, I'm thinking there is really a problem here. Before we even start talking about who got what, uh, let's talk a little bit about the need for a report card and how this came about. Uh, Well, we've been uh, doing this for a few years now. Uh, We started doing it because we felt the need to do an evaluation, year-end evaluation, of uh, our federal leaders' um, actions in terms of fighting hate in this country as well as standing up for human rights. And uh, as you can see from this year's report card, uh, they all need to repeat a grade. Well, maybe except Jagmeet Singh, who can do much better. <laughs> I guess he's the one that got the C. But uh, yes. let's start right right with the D, and I guess that goes right to the Prime Minister, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, the Prime Minister, the Liberals uh, under Justin Trudeau, have tried to corner the market on being the party that says that it stands up against hate and racism. But if we look at the record, um, there's been a lot of political platitudes, a lot of performative statements, um, and little to show to date in terms of standing up against uh, hate. Now, I will give them credit for one thing, is that in the 2022 budget, there were funds committed for a national anti-hate strategy. However, it was um, 85, uh, I believe it was $85 million over four years, and that is too inadequate. And most of the heavy lifting was left up to local community organizations across the country who could access those funds. And that's not what's needed. What's needed is a national, nationally-led um, anti-hate strategy by the federal government. On the issue of human rights, the uh, the liberals love to talk about standing up for human rights, but let's look at what they've done in not internationally, but in Canada, with regard to what's going on in Quebec with its Bill 21 secularism law and uh, its language law, which puts further restrictions on linguistic rights of Anglophones in that province. And basically, it's nothing. So um, the the low grades and the F grades are entirely justified in our view. If you had to set out priorities for the government in the next uh, budget, uh, which I guess will be in April, uh, and in the hopes of raising that grade from a D to something higher for a federal government, what should the top priorities be then? Well, I, we've been calling for a number of years for the government to get far more aggressive uh, by leading a national anti-hate strategy led by the government, not left up to community organizations. It would involve community organizations, but the federal government would take the lead. Um, There would be some sort of a coordinating body at the national level to coordinate with provinces. Um, That would be one of the the main priorities. Um, Another one would be... uh, uh, being more aggressive on Indigenous rights and uh, adopting all the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as well as the uh, calls to action from the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women's Inquiry. Um, Stop opposing this lawsuit that has been launched by 
by uh, federal black employees about systemic racism in federal government and being more aggressive about fighting uh, white supremacy, as well as, as I previously referenced, taking uh, more aggressive action in Quebec on Bill 21 and Bill 96. To me, it almost seems like there is a need for more action and less study. And uh, and what we're falling short of is uh, we've we've got a lot of the answers, but uh, everything you said there, or a lot of it, comes down to a lack of uh, doing anything about it. Yes, it, it comes down to political will. And unfortunately, um, all the federal leaders are playing politics with racism and standing up for, uh, for charter rights and civil liberties. Um, they don't want to offend certain constituencies because um, it'll make a difference <clears throat> in how those con- constituencies vote in the next election. And I think Canadians need to ask themselves, what kind of nation do we want to be? Do we want to be a nation um, that is in decline when it comes to social cohesion and uh, inclusivity and diversity? All we have to do is look at the states to see the way things are going there, to see where we, we're headed if we don't. Or do we want to be a nation that lives up to the image of ourselves as being one that accepts the diversity that we have, that stands up against the hate and racism, and frankly, um, does not uh, only issue political platitudes about standing up for human rights, because that's the way it's been for far too long. And I think that if we want Canada um, to improve and be great, as some elements of uh, you know, Canadian society say. I think this is the way uh, that we, we do it. We're talking with Fareed Khan, founder of the Canadians United Against Hate, uh, looking at some of the other uh, federal party leaders. Uh, at best, we've got uh, uh, in your report card a C going to Jugmeet Singh and the NDP. Tell me about that. Well, the, the, the NDP um, historically has been the party that has led on um, addressing issues of diversity, inclusion, opposing uh, racism and hate, and standing up for um, for uh, civil liberties and human rights. But uh, unfortunately, um, Jagmeet Singh is suffering from the same ailment as the other federal leaders are, in that you know, which uh, which means that uh, he has been um, less aggressive in uh, addressing those issues. The only place where he got a really high grade was in supporting indigenous rights. Um, He got a B-plus in that, and uh, that's because he he has been very aggressive in uh, promoting um, the rights of indigenous people and calling on the government to undertake programs to uh, meet the the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the Murdered and Missing Women's Inquiry. Um, as well, he's been, uh, his party's been very vocal on the issue of clean water for um, Indigenous communities that have been under boiled water advisories. But once again, on the issue of Bill 21 and Bill 96 in Quebec, he is the same as the other leaders, and he got an F on that. Everyone seems to be a little bit afraid of Quebec and uh, venturing into uh, those waters, I would imagine. Uh, Let's take a look at the F, though. Uh, Two parties uh, failing in all categories. Yes, well, um, I think that uh, the Conservatives historically have had a major problem, it seems, with um, advocating on issues of racism. 
uh, fighting racism, white supremacy. Under the current leader, um, they've shown themselves, uh, Pierre Polyever, they've shown themselves to be playing footsies with elements of white supremacy and uh, and neo-Nazism. Uh, he stood with uh, the leaders of the Ottawa occupation, who had known histories <clears throat> of promoting racism, white supremacy, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism. And uh, once again, on uh, on uh, Bill 21, Bill 96, he basically, his party has basically said that um, it's a Quebec issue that Quebec voters have to deal with. And frankly, you can't be a national leader and say, you know what, we're going to have a patchwork of human rights across the country where in one one province, um, governments can do wherever they, whatever they want, but in another province, we're going to be very vocal and strong in responding to um, human rights violations. I'm sure that's unacceptable. And uh, Yves-François Blanchette of the Bloc Québécois, his party, of course, uh, sees nothing wrong at all with um, what's happening in Quebec. He doesn't even recognize the issue of systemic racism in that province, and he stands side by side with uh, the Premier of Quebec. Um, and, uh, you know, frankly, the Bloc Québécois and Quebec nationalists seem to be drifting into the territory of ethno-nationalism, which is a very dangerous ideology, because any time ethno-nationalism rears its head anywhere in the world, it leads to um, worse things down the road. Some very strong things to uh, talk about and to certainly consider there. Fareed, thanks so much uh, for sharing your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate uh, getting the chance to talk about this. You know, one thing I've noticed over the years, everybody seems to act like they are an expert when it comes to the law. I've had uh, more times where I've had expert opinions and advice coming from my Uber driver or from the barber than I have had uh, coming from an actual lawyer. But one of the people in Vancouver that tackles this by answering questions that people actually have, and I love this about her, is Kyla Lee, a lawyer at Acumen Law, who goes on social media and takes even some of the wackiest questions out there and keeps a straight face. Well, she smiles, but more or less keeps a straight face and uh, provides some insight and the right answers on many things, uh, most of which are traffic-related, but many things relating to the law. And she's with us now. Kyla, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, Kyla, I was talking with our technical producer, Talia Miller, just uh, before the show, and uh, I showed her my TikTok feed. And uh, you're coming up more and more often. And maybe that's the algorithm. Uh, You know, I like news. You like news. We follow issues. But uh, I I see you're posting a whole bunch in there. And with that must come uh, some really bizarre questions that you get. Am I right with that part so far? Oh, absolutely. I get a lot of very strange questions on social media and in person and, you know, over uh, over email. Okay, so without having you perhaps written them down, what are the, some of the wildest ones, and you can even go by themes, that you've come across in 2022? Uh, well, one that I get a lot that I think is the strangest one is people who ask me about sort of that, that free man of the land or natural person defense. Um, even though it's it's pretty clear in a lot of news stories, court decisions, and 
uh, information that's readily available, that there isn't a defense to say that you're a natural person and therefore you didn't enter into a contract with the government to be bound by the law and the law can't apply to you unless you agree to let it apply to you. Uh, people still ask me, you know, is this true or does this have any validity or, or if I, you know, don't uh, sign a contract with the government, do, can I do whatever I want? So that one is the one that surprises me the most. <laughs> and you know, it's funny that you mentioned that, and kind of not funny, but I've got um, a friend of my spouse who uh, talks about that natural person and has gone to court with it with even some very serious matters and gone right before a judge. And I think, oh, God, that's going to be risky. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. But they do. Where do they get their information it seems like a lot of it is coming out of like conspiracy YouTube videos. Um, and I think they're also now pretty prolific on TikTok, but as well as um, on blog posts that people have written about this. And, if, you know, this is you mentioned the algorithm earlier. This is sort of one of the negative aspects of the algorithm is the more you sort of respond positively to content online, the more it's going to feed you the same type of content. So people end up in these echo chambers where they're hearing inaccurate information and then because they hear it from so many sources, they persuade themselves that it must be true. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, you have been uh, on TikTok yourself uh, a lot in the last year. Um, what are some of the others you've come across? Oh, lots of people want to know um, what they should, can and should do at roadblocks. Lots of um, questions about, you know, how far they have to unroll their windows, what information they have to provide to the police, um, and whether or not they have to comply with demands to participate in sobriety testing like breathalyzers or, or field sobriety tests. And I've always been curious about this one, too. And I, I saw you answering this a little bit, but I, I still felt awkward um, uh, because I, I thought if I was ever, unfortunately, in that situation, which I intend never to be in. But, uh, you know, when you are stopped and asked questions by a police officer, one of the pieces of advice that you give is don't say anything. That's not yeah. easy. It's not easy for a talk show host. It's really easy for me to say, you know, don't answer questions about drinking or don't say where you're coming from. Um, but putting into practice, even for myself, is uh, is hard because we're sort of socialized in we all our. Want to be uh, yeah, we all want to be liked. We want to be polite. We want to, you know, answer the officer's questions. And we're told even too, you know, the way that we're brought up with police in schools and police in communities, um, that the police are our friends. So we think that it's okay to answer these questions. But if something goes wrong and you end up failing that breathalyzer test, those statements are going to be used against you. They almost, in fact, will. <laughs> I mean, that's going to be something that's almost a guarantee from what I understand following what you have been saying. Uh, but by the way, you do have a solution to those that uh, may feel awkward with not saying anything. And I like this. You know what I'm talking about? I do. <laughs> and it's uh, just to say, lawyer told me not to talk to you. Uh, the police will know uh, probably that you've watched one of my TikTok videos if you answer their questions with that statement. Love that. I absolutely love that. Um, so what made you decide to go and start using TikTok more often? 
Well, I saw that there were a lot of people, particularly young people on TikTok. And for me, you know, it's very important to give people accurate legal information, accurate information about their rights and responsibilities, because, of course, I see the aftermath of when people don't comply with their legal obligations or they don't understand their rights. And, you know, it's easy to educate people on Twitter when there's a certain demographic that's on Twitter and a certain demographic that's on Facebook. But to reach that younger generation, I needed to go to where they were so that I could make sure that they're, you know, essentially growing up with the correct information about how to conduct themselves in police investigations. That's fantastic. But you you must have a thick skin, eh? Yeah, I do. There are some hurtful comments on there from time to time, but I try and laugh them off because, you know, people on the Internet, the anonymity is like a shield. It's not something that people would say to your face. And half the time, the people that make mean comments to me, if they get in trouble, end up calling me anyway. So, yeah, true enough. Um, (laughs) When it comes to law enforcement and uh, some of the uh, reaction to what you've been saying, is it mixed or is it always, uh, hey, Kyla, uh, you know, you shouldn't be doing uh, this? uh, Why are you uh, talking about that? Um, What do you get from law enforcement? You know, a lot of police officers um, that I see in court um, pull me aside and tell me they really appreciate the information that I am putting out there because I'm not telling anybody to make a police officer's life more difficult. In fact, I've in, in a lot of my videos advocated being polite um, and cooperating with all of the things that you are legally obligated to comply with. And for them, they appreciate that because instead of having somebody yelling in their face and swearing at them or telling them they don't have authority to do what they're doing, they get people who know their rights, know their obligations and exercise them in a much more effective manner for everybody that's conducting the investigation or participating in it. Absolutely. You know, something else I noticed, uh, I don't know if it was on TikTok, may have been on Twitter, but uh, something you did that really impressed me over the last year is a young lawyer in court. You actually helped out this young lawyer with understanding uh, when you could actually step in and, uh, and call out a judge. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing, especially since the pandemic, a lot of young lawyers haven't had the same type of mentorship and connections um, that uh, that they would get otherwise, because a lot of courts have been remote or people have been working from home. Um, so for me as well, it's very important that younger generations of lawyers see um, how lawyering is done and, and know how to uh, help themselves and help their clients in effective ways. Absolutely. Kyla Lee, thanks so much uh, for sharing time. Uh, You're still going to use TikTok in uh, 2023, I would imagine? I will. So hopefully I'll see you on there. (laughs) You know, it's always really tough to know, but we're a little bit closer to getting an answer because the BC property assessments have been updated for 2023. But that's just assessed value anyways, and there's always a difference between that and what your home can actually go for. But there is that update. There is another challenge to this. What you see on that assessed update, well, it's going to be a whole lot different than if the assessment actually happened you know, now and not back in July. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but to bring in some expertise The one I really enjoyed turning to is Sarah Daniels, a familiar name, real estate agent in South Surrey, author, broadcaster. Have I left anything out, Sarah? Oh, I, you know, I mean, uh, 
gal around town, bon vivant. I have no idea. It's gal around town. We can. <laughs> doing as much as we can. Absolutely. Good gal or bad gal over the holidays? Uh, pretty, pretty quiet. Pretty quiet. Pretty tame. Okay. Fair enough. And uh, happy 2023 to you to you as well my friend so taking a look at this uh sarah we see uh 2023 the i guess the statements start coming out on wednesday uh january 4th also happens to be my birthday that day happy birthday yeah but uh i guess we're going to be finding out what when we see the assessed value you can actually find out now if you go to bcassessment.ca they are posted Ah. um i have looking at addresses you know for instance i you know everybody's curious it's like you know you remember addresses of homes that you used to own (laughs) and uh, and childhood homes and you look up those assessments i've been doing that today um the assessments um what people uh you know they they think of it it comes out the beginning of january so that's the value of your property it's actually not the assessed value of your property as of january the first it's the assessed value of your property according to bc assessment on july 1st of 2022 now, having said that, I've looked through some of the uh, properties, you know, like local properties that I know of that have sold and, and, the, and that I and feel that I have a pretty good idea on value. Yeah. And I would say that even based on July's numbers for the properties that I have personally looked up, and again, uh, it, it can be different for everybody, but from what I'm seeing, that even in July, these properties were priced abundantly higher than they would have been selling for even at the hottest part in the market. So. You have to remember with with assessments that these are uh, based on a whole bunch of random sort of things in the sense that, uh, you know, the B.C. government doesn't know whether if, you know, if you've lived in a home for 20 years, they don't know whether you've updated inside. They they have no idea what you've done. Um, They rely on sort of the general area, what sales have happened in the area and that kind of thing. So you should never get too married to the idea of your assessment. And the other thing is, don't be upset if you think that your your assessment is low. This is how they base your taxes. So the combination of the BC assessment and the local mill rate, and the mill rate is what is the uh, percentage per thousand dollars that you are taxed on the value of your home. That's what you're taxed on. So you don't necessarily want to have a high assessment. It may, may make you feel better, might make you think that your house yep. is worth more, but it's only going to affect your taxes and that's it. Sarah, there are a few things to unpack there, but uh, one of the ones, and I, I'm so glad you mentioned this because I've often wondered, uh, you know, I live in a townhouse and our complex has 102 units. So I, I would imagine that my assessed value is probably going to be close to the assessed value of my neighbors within the complex, which have the same design, same square footage, basically. Uh, even though we put so much work into the interior and it's all, uh, you know, decked out the way we want mm-hmm. it. Uh, so some of those other factors really come in when you go to sell and buy in the non-assessed real world, don't they? Yeah, they certainly do. And I and I am aware of, like, uh, certainly, you know, in years where we haven't had such great fluctuations in the value of property um, that people have, like, especially the older generation. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting up there myself. So, you know, that would oh, you and me both. include me, but have relied on property assessments. And I, and I will say that a property assessment is just a very, very small little cog on determining the value of your property. And that if you are looking to purchase or sell, do not rely on the property assessment value. Sometimes they are high, like for instance, the ones that I was mentioning earlier, the properties that I have looked up. 
um, for the most part, have seen, seemed high. And other ones, including um, a place that my mom owns, seemed a little bit low. Um, again, um, when, you're, when you're actually purchasing or selling a home, you're, you're actually looking at the actual, uh, you're talking to a realtor, you're looking at the value, you're looking at recent compar- uh, comparables, you're looking at updates within the house, you're, you're looking at things, whether the roof has been had done, you know, like the, the actual health of the building per se. So that assessment that you're getting from BC assessments, you know, it's not like they're walking around knocking door to door and saying, when was the last time you updated your kitchen? That's not happening. So you've got to remember that this is a really just a generalization. It has nothing to do with the real value of your home for the most part. So if it seems high, don't get too excited because, as I mentioned, a lot of the ones that I've seen that that seem high um, are higher than they should have even been at the height of the market. And ones that seem low, again, it's not going to affect the value of your property. You know, it's interesting, popular wisdom in the past, at least in my neighborhood, has been if you have a assessed value, oh yeah, that's just the assessed value, the real value is going to be so much higher than that. And that has worked for years. But I guess you're seeing, um, or I'm thinking you might be seeing, those two values coming a little bit closer now, eh? Uh, there, it, it depends. I mean, for instance, uh, years ago, um, and this was when, when you could buy a house in South Surrey, White Rock for four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, I sold a little house of mine that it was on a 50 by 100 lot. It was only about 900 square feet. And I sold the house because it was completely redone for four hundred and ten, four hundred and fifteen thousand dollars $415,000. And I purchased another house on a larger lot, on an over 8,000 square foot lot, so, you know, 60% larger. And the house was 60% larger, but it hadn't been done up at all. And yes, and I purchased it for 438000 So I was paying about $28,000, you know, roughly more than what I had sold the previous house for. The larger home with the larger lot with a lane access, which the other one didn't have, actually had a lower assessed value than the smaller house on the smaller lot. And again, it depends on where you are location-wise. So the first little house that I had that had the higher assessment was also a block and a half from the water. It didn't have any ocean views or anything like that, but it was a block and a half from homes that were selling for millions of dollars. Um, it was just a question of like proximity, what the recent sales were. So again, I mean, you shouldn't, if anything, if you've got a super high assessment, you might actually want to argue that right now, because again, you're paying taxes based on that high assessment, a low assessment, nothing to worry about. Yeah. It all depends on your plans in the immediate and long-term future. I, I would imagine. Okay, yeah. It's, it's just, as, as far as I'm concerned as a realtor, and most realtors will agree with this, it's just a number that comes out randomly at the beginning of every year. As far as the value of your property is concerned, don't worry. Talk to a realtor. They'll give you an actual number. Okay, we're talking with Sarah Daniels, real estate agent in South Surrey, along with a whole bunch of other things you can add to that, not the least of which, and you can still tell, is broadcaster. And even though the BC Assessment Branch is uh, going to make some comments We expect on Wednesday, as Sarah points out, you can already go to their website and check out uh, the value, the assessed value as of July of uh, a property you might be interested in. Either your own, you know, one that uh, you grew up in or one that you once owned and are just curious how it stands now. But also, as Sarah pointed out, uh, that doesn't necessarily tell you the whole story at all. It just tells you what the assessed value was 
back at that point of time in July. And boy, things have been changing a lot. Now, Sarah Daniels, uh, the other thing that's happening in the news right now is this uh, home buyers ban, the foreign home buyers ban, which came into effect. It's now here. Uh, what do we know about this? It's um, it's been hard to follow. Even as a real estate uh, agent myself, the information has not been incredibly forthcoming. I mean, it was announced back in the spring, and you know we were waiting for details, waiting for different details. But as it stands right now, um, basically you cannot purchase a property if you're not a Canadian, and the non-Canadian is defined as somebody who's not a Canadian citizen or not a person registered as an Indian under the Indian Act, nor a permanent resident. You can't be a corporation that is incorporated otherwise than under the laws of Canada or a province. You have to be a Canadian corporation. And uh, a corporation incorporated under the laws of Canada or a province whose shares are not listed on a stock exchange in Canada, for which a designation under Section 262 of the Income Tax Act is in effect, and that is controlled by a person referred to in paragraph A or B, and Number four, a prescribed person or entity. Does that sound exhausting? Yes. Love it. Well, here's the thing is, as far as uh, individuals are concerned, uh, basically, if you're a Canadian citizen or a permanent resident, um, uh, there are some extra exceptions, but you are excluded, of course. So for the most part, everybody listening to this show right now is excluded. If you are, um, and, and I do know people that have, have arrived in Canada, immigrated from South Africa recently, they've just acquired their permanent resident status. Now they will be able to purchase. Prior to that, they would have not been able to. They would have been in a rental situation. Um, there are other exceptions as well. As far as the residential property is concerned, there was a lot of head scratching even last month, wondering, you know, will, will areas like Whistler and Pemberton be excluded as they have been from the foreign buyer tax? that we had in place in the province of British Columbia leading up to that. It seems that, yes, they are, because what they are saying is um, that a property is within a census metropolitan area having a population of at least 100,000. So that would exclude. So if if you're in a a town like uh, Kelowna or Kamloops, which the the census population is over 100,000, then that's where the exclusion will be. But Whistler, you know, because it does not have a, a year-round population of at least 100,000, is is not included. It also says, or census agglom- agglomeration. I don't even know what that means, having a population of at least 10,000. Anyhow, long and short of it is, if you happen to be a not-a-Canadian citizen or a non-Canadian entity, and you're looking to purchase in Canada over the next two years, um, you should be, um, if you think that there is an exception for you, you should be speaking to a very well-versed taxation and real estate lawyer. Don't ask us realtors because we cannot make those uh, decisions for you. So you, you need to know that in advance. And, and there are, you know, there are penalties. They are, you know, the government's coming for you if you're trying to purchase um, and or trying to get around this uh, law. So. No, but that's an interesting clarification because I know there was a lot of question about uh, properties and even a surge in buying interest uh, from Americans thinking that this would uh, really crack down on some of those uh, rural recreational properties which don't seem to be affected. Uh, so I love the clarification there from you, Sarah, and what you understand. But here's my question. Areas like, and the first thing that comes to mind when you said it, Kelowna. Well, Kelowna, I mean, that is prime real estate for vacation property for a lot of Americans. It's going to change the game, is it not? 
Well, it, Kelowna has always always been part of that regardless. Kelowna, that area has been, um, because of uh, uh, foreign, has been uh, basically um, under the guise of foreign buyer's tax. Um, so because, uh, and, and also had to have rentals put in place. So this actually, um, for Kelowna, really affected a lot of people from Alberta who had vacation properties within the Kelowna area. And if they were not renting them out or living in them for more than six months of the year, they were having to pay the empty homes and vacancy tax, right? So there's, there's been a lot of um, issues that have been in play in regards to vacant properties or properties owned from outside the province, etc., that have been around for years. Um, Whistler Black Home has been exempt. Uh, I mean, you know, you're not going to kill the cash cow because we have an incredible amount of Americans that, that own property in the Whistler Black Home area. And, you know, that is a tourist area. Um, but it's a fine line. I mean, you know, the interesting thing is I do have clients that have, have owned property in the United States. And given the, you know, the sort of the uh, turmoil that has been down those states in the last couple of years in particular, They've actually divested themselves of American properties, worrying that American, uh, the United States might at some point have a foreign buyer or uh, restriction or ban, and that would include Canadians. And that's, in fact, what we're, we're doing to Americans right now. I mean, a lot of, there's a lot of Canadians that have uh, vacation properties down in the desert, in Florida, if you're on the East Coast, uh, where have you, Hawaii, for instance. And, you know, there's there's always the possibility that what's good for the goose could be good for the gander. So it's something to think about uh, repercussion wise. You know, Sarah, the one thing I like about you, you break it down so a guy like me can understand it. (laughs) There you go. No, that's uh, terrific and something to watch uh, in the in the uh, year ahead to see some of the impacts of it. Sarah Daniels, thank you so much for spending time with us. You're welcome. Have a great uh, day and happy birthday on Wednesday and happy new new year to everybody.